How do we go from the, the, the sinful people we are to not being even sinful or having any selfishness or anything? We will be, um, we'll be judged against what God's called us to and, and in stewardship of the gifts that He's given us and, um, and to use those gifts on behalf of others. All the things that you've been carrying around your whole life that aren't necessarily good for you, it's like they're all burning away as you're walking towards something that's a lot greater. Any part of us that isn't identified with Christ will have to be dealt with. And, and I think the term of like burning it off is because it, it will be like painful. What I'm scared of is if there's like all the heavenly hosts are there and they're like, okay, Shauna, account for all the things that you haven't yet. That would be horrific. <laughs> what did you do with what I gave you to steward on earth? I probably wouldn't have an answer. I'd just be like, well, you know, that's, I mean, that's totally up to you. If, if I'm ending up someplace else, nice to know you. I guess, you know, I don't know. It's the total absence of that shame or guilt or burden that we all carry um, and feeling the freedom of, wow, I haven't done anything to deserve this kind of overwhelming love and grace in my life. Good morning, Woodland Hills. All right. It's really good to be with all you and worshiping God and being in his presence and having the service. I love that lady up there like, if I'm going to another place, see ya. I don't know. Just so honest. Uh, before I forget, I see a few people here in the room, but just reminded me, uh, there's, uh, we're going to have a tap party this Friday, okay, so that's where people with labels and people without labels come together and have a party, so it's a great ministry, if you can make it, uh, come out, six to nine. So uh, I've been out for a couple of weeks, traveling around, doing some ministry, I want to thank David and Oshida for doing an outstanding job preaching, we're so blessed to have them, amen? Yeah, we are, they're, they're a real blessing, real blessing, I... Uh, this last week I was with some pastors out in California talking about the kingdom, and then uh, the week before that I was on an interesting trip. There, it, it's, it's called Sankofa, and uh, you take we, we took, had 15 African American pastors and 15 white pastors, and we teamed up, and we on a, took a bus ride to all the major sites of the civil rights movement, and it was a powerful, powerful time. It was just uh, at some point I'll, I'll have to share more about it, but. Uh, I, I told the person who's running this thing, you've got to find a way to mass market this because, man, it shouldn't just be pastors who take this. I, I'd like to have, you know, having 30 people from our congregation uh, going down every month to a trip like this because it's just powerful. It's just powerful. If, if, if nothing else, if you ever get a chance to go to Birmingham, Alabama and visit the Legacy Peace and Justice Museum, man, it, is, it, it just opened last year and it is, and plan on spending at least six hours there. We had four and it wasn't enough. Um, it, it's just, it starts at the beginning of slavery and takes it all the way up to the present uh, with the mass incarceration of African Americans in the name of, of, in the name of drugs on war, war on drugs. And it's just, it's just powerful. If you get a chance to do that, take it. One last thing, otherwise I'll start preaching on this and I won't get to my sermon. But uh, uh, it, I really want to encourage you to read this book. I, I read this book five years ago and thought it was great. And then I reread it again when I got back from this trip. And it was even greater. And I hardly ever read books twice. Uh, it tells you how much I think of this book that I read it twice. But it, it's called The New Jim Crow. The New Jim Crow. Okay? Everyone say The New Jim Crow. Okay. Buy that book. Uh, it is eye-opening. It's powerful. It's so well-researched. And uh, that's all I'll say about that. Otherwise, I won't get to my sermon. So, uh, 
Actually, the message I'm going to be preaching today, I should have preached two weeks ago. Uh, because I, two weeks, three weeks ago, I talked about how uh, we don't stop existing uh, in a conscious state between death and resurrection. And today I want to talk about what goes on in that, in that uh, uh, interim stage. Do we just sit and chill with Jesus or do we continue to grow in Christ? Um, but because of that stupid snowstorm we had, it botched everything up. And I had these, these ministry trips already planned, so we had to juggle it around. So you heard of heaven before you heard of the prelude to heaven. So this is the prelude to heaven. This is the prequel to last week's sermon that Dave did an excellent job on. How's that? So what takes place in this interim stage? Now, we don't have much to go on, biblically speaking, on this. The Bible's very practical and pretty much says, let's treat one lifetime at a, at, at a time, one epic at a time. So it doesn't tell us a lot of details. Um, and the little that we have to go on can be interpreted in different ways. And so I want to, at the very start of this message, make it clear that what I'm going to be sharing here isn't a doctrine of Woodland Hills Church. Uh, I'm going to be sharing my perspective on this. Um, and so feel free to disagree with me on this. I want you to feel free on that. Uh, I just ask that you have an open mind and an open heart and consider it, all right? This is a, I'll be sharing something that I've believed for over two decades, but I've never preached it here. Um, and it wasn't because of any fear or anything. It's just that we never had a series on death before. <laughs> I never had a chance. It never seemed to, to fit anything. And so this will be new to probably everyone here, except for those who know me very well and have talked to me about it. But uh, yeah, so just, just consider this, all right? So I'll start with this. Christians have always made a distinction between justification and sanctification, because you find that distinction in the Bible. Justification happens instantly when you truly surrender your life to Jesus Christ and put your trust in him. You are instantly, as Paul puts it, you're put in Christ Jesus. And everything that belongs to Jesus by nature is shared with you by grace. And so you're, you're incorporated into Christ. Uh, and so his love becomes your love and his holiness becomes your holiness and his blamelessness your blamelessness and his right standing with God becomes your right standing with God. All that is instant. At the core of your being, what the Bible calls your spirit, you are, are given the Father's DNA. You're made a child of God. You're born from above. You're born with an imperishable seed. So that's, that's at the core of your being. That's justification. But as most of us, I think, have experienced, the run on the aisles here at Woodland Hills Church, hallelujah. When Shauna was having us say na 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 to each other, it's thinking, are we a Pentecostal church? Na 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 na. It's like a, <laughs> everyone's speaking in tongues. Okay, where was I? Okay, so as you may have noticed, um, you're justified, but that doesn't mean that your thinking perfectly aligns with who you are in Christ, not automatically. And because your mind doesn't automatically align with who you are in Christ, your attitudes and behavior don't automatically perfectly align with who you are in Christ. And the process of bringing our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions into alignment with the truth of who we are in Christ, that's what's called sanctification. And so the Bible tells us over and over again, especially in the New Testament, you find this kind of stuff all the time. You be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That, that's... We can't do that without the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit doesn't do it for us. We play a role in that. You be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You take every thought captive to Jesus Christ. You put off the old self and put on that new self that's being renewed by the, 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 the transformation of your mind. Uh, pursue holiness, put, a, put away sin, and all of that stuff. We play a role in that. That's sanctification. That's sanctification. Now, the question I want to be asking this morning is this. What happens if you die 
And that process of sanctification isn't yet complete. I imagine there's like one or two of our pod parishioners probably who, who are wondering about that because they might not die perfected. Truth is, as I look, if I evaluate my life here at the young age of 60, um, I'm not overly optimistic that I'll be perfected by the time I die. So I have a vested interest in this question. I bet you do too. In fact, you're in good company because the Apostle Paul admitted, even towards the end of his life, that he wasn't yet perfected. He hadn't yet attained a full likeness with Christ. So what happens? And what makes this a real interesting and important question, I think, is that the New Testament is very clear that that process has to be completed before we enter the kingdom. I'll give you just a couple of verses here. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 says this. Pursue peace with everyone and pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now the holiness he's talking about, there can't be our incorporation into Christ, our, our identity in Christ, because he tells us to pursue it. And we've already got that. You can't pursue that. So he's talking about the holiness that is involved in sanctification, bringing your thoughts and your heart and your life and your actions into alignment with the truth of who you are in Christ. But until that process is complete, we won't see the Lord. And then John fills it out a little more when he says this. See what love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. We're called the children of God because of the Father's love. And that is what we are. Beloved, we are God's children now. But what we will be has not yet been revealed. But we do know this. When he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And all, listen to this now, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Okay, so you are, if you've surrendered your life to Christ, you're a child of God. You're a child of God now. Okay, that's given to you by God's grace. That's the Father's love. But we're not yet fully transformed. In fact, it's not even clear, John says, what we will become when we're perfectly aligned with who we are in Christ. But we do know this, that we'll see him as he is, for we shall be like him. What's at work here is this principle, uh, it runs throughout scripture, it's kind of a truth throughout the, the ancient world, that, that like is known by like. That we'll only see him as he truly is when we are like he truly is. Like is known by like. It, uh, the, the one who is not at all like Christ can't even know Christ as he truly is. There has to be commonality for there to be knowledge. So we'll, it's only when we are like him that we'll see him as he truly is. And then John says, all who have this hope, this is your expectation, this is your anticipation, you purify yourself now because he is pure. So we're to be involved in the process of, of, of purifying ourselves. And until that is done, uh, we won't see him as he truly is. Only when we're fully like him will we see him as he truly is. So... That the, 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 this is this process has got to be completed. Uh, it's it's not a an incidental thing, and uh, you find this throughout the Bible. Revelations twenty one, for example, we're, I won't look at it, but it tells us that the gates of the heavenly city are always open, but nothing unclean can enter it. It's got to be cleansed before you enter into the kingdom. It's got to be compatible with the the holiness of God. So if you die before that process is complete, how does that process get complete? Uh, you've got two options here. Uh, many believe that when you die, God completes the process for you. You're instantly perfected. Alternatively, some believe that the process of sanctification that we have a part of, a responsibility in, that that continues when we're out of our body and with the Lord, when, we're, when, when, when we pass on the next stage, that continues until the process is complete. 
So we're going to look at both those options. The first option, I like to call this one the, the zap doctrine because the, it, the idea is that God's going to zap into you moral perfection as soon as you die. He'll just zap it into you. Um, that is the standard Protestant doctrine. Uh, Luther and Calvin, who were the fathers of the Protestant Reformation, uh, in the early 16th century, they were disturbed by the Catholic doctrine of purgatory. Uh, and, and at this time, in the 16th century, purgatory was taught as, as a place where you go to pay for your sins. You atone for your sins. You're punished for your sins. And the Reformers saw... Calvin and Luther saw that that is inconsistent with the New Testament's teaching that, that the, the blood of Jesus Christ atones for us, and you can't improve upon that. So they rejected that doctrine. Plus, purgatory at this time was wrapped up with uh, this thing called indulgences. Some of you have heard of indulgences? No former Catholics in the crowd? No Catholics? Indulgences. Okay, so indulgences at this time, what it involved was this. They taught that purgatory was as painful as hell at least for some people, depending on the severity of sin that you had to pay for. And, but you could lessen your time in purgatory with some money. For you know, a little offering here. And not coincidentally, throughout the Middle Ages, the, the, the length of time that people believed people were in purgatory got longer and longer and longer. And so the idea was this, that you could lessen your time in purgatory or the, the time of a loved one by the church will indulge you this if you'll pay a certain sum. So for, for, for a mere $10,000, you could get 10,000 years uh, of your wife's suffering alleviated. And can, you, can, you just, can you imagine your wife who died last year? She's down there, that lovely lady, but you know, she had some sin, and so she's going to be there for 10,000 years suffering. You can, oh, you can just hear her screaming right now. But you can end that right now for a mere $10,000. It was the best money-making scheme on the planet. I mean, you get people to believe that. Boof. That's, that's partly how all those cathedrals in Europe got built by peasants. They offer up their money. I want to spare my wife 10,000 years of suffering. Well, the, the reformers, Calvin and Luther, they saw that that was this boulder dash. And so they, they abandoned this, this doctrine of purgatory and indulgences and instead taught a new doctrine. Now, this hadn't been taught before. The idea of purgatory... The word doesn't come into being until like the late 4th century, but the concept is much earlier. And, and all Christians had believed that something happens in terms of growth between death and resurrection. But the Reformers taught this new doctrine, and it was the Zap doctrine. You're perfected the moment you die. Whether you were Mother Teresa who spent your life cultivating a Christ-like character, or whether you were Joe Schmuck who was mean to animals and mean to people and racist and bigot and beat his wife. If he has a deathbed conversion, he's perfected too. And so they're... They have equal perfection. And they nuance it sometimes by saying, well, one would have greater rewards. But in terms of being compatible with, with God, in terms of being perfected and being able to enter the kingdom, that, that you get zapped with that the minute you die. Now, I personally have some issues with that view. And I would like to share them with you if you don't mind. Okay. And since you're here, I assume you don't mind. Uh, several problems. One is this. I, I think the reformers were... Uh, totally right to reject this idea that you pay for your own sins. Uh, Jesus' death on the cross is sufficient for everything. But there's a, an increasing number of Protestant thinkers, leaders, and pastors, including like C.S. Lewis, for example, who suspect at least that Luther and Calvin threw out the sanctification baby with the purgatorial bathwater. I like that. Um, I know. Very clever, actually. Okay. Uh, here's the thing. Here's the thing. 
So going back to the very beginning in church history, you find there's always been two strands of thought about purgatory, though it wasn't call, called that until the end of the 4th century. But there's two strands of thought. One was that you go there to pay for your sins. That's all, that, that was there from the start. And that's the one that the reformers rightly rejected. But there's another strand that said that purgatory simply completes the sanctification process. It gets your character compatible with the kingdom of God so you can enter in the kingdom of God. Unfortunately, that, that strand of thinking had pretty much disappeared by the 16th century. And so the reformers never even considered it. And I suspect part of the reason is that it, it, you, you, you'll get a lot more money if you say that your, your, your wife's being punished for her sins and tormented rather than she's just completing her sanctification process. You know, that's, so, so that strand had almost disappeared. The reformers never considered it. So the first problem with this view is that it was premised on a one-sided understanding of purgatory and, uh, and an inadequate understanding of church history. That's problem number one. Problem number two. If you're zapped with moral perfection the minute you die, is it really moral perfection? That you got. Is, is, are ethical virtues the kind of thing you can zap into somebody? So if you've been here for any length of time, you've heard me uh, say this, uh, but it will be a good review for you. I maintain that love has got to be chosen. Love has to be chosen. A love that's not chosen, a love that's programmed into you or zapped into you isn't a genuine love. For example, Shauna here, uh, she's married to Scott, a good friend of mine, and, 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 and Scott's a great guy, but I wouldn't say he's perfect. And I don't think Shauna would say he's a perfect husband. So let's suppose Shauna wants a perfect husband. And, and, and so she invents this clever little microchip uh, that could control every neuron in your brain. Everything you think, everything you feel, everything you say, everything you do. It's controlled by this microchip. For, and, and she programs it for the perfect husband. And so it's so sophisticated, she slips it into Scott's ear while he's sleeping. And he immediately starts dreaming perfect husband dreams. And when he wakes up, he's got perfect husband feelings for her. And says perfect husband things to her. And does perfect husband behavior towards her. Has, has Scott become a more loving husband? Uh, would you credit him with that? And the answer is, I, I, I don't think so. I don't think so. Because all the improvement was zapped into him. He had nothing to do with it. Really, all the improvement is a matter of Shauna just talking to herself via the, the, this, this microchip. Oh, Shauna, you're such a wonderful woman. You know, it, 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 it's a, he's a puppet. He's a puppet on her hand via the microchip. And the thing is, Follow me on this. All morality at its base is about love. All the virtues are simply variations on love. So if love can't be zapped into us, moral, moral virtue can't be zapped into us. It's just not zappable, in my humble opinion. And I think that's as true uh, this side of death as it is the next side of death. Third, if God can just zap perfection into us when we die... Why doesn't he do it now? <laughs> Save us the trouble. If God can zap us into perfection, what's with all this talk in the New Testament? Why bother with you be transformed by the renewing of your mind? You pursue holiness. You put off the old and put on the new and all that stuff. Just zap it, all right? In fact, if God can just zap perfection into us, why didn't he just zap us in, that into everyone the minute they're born? In fact, why even bother with this prelude to heaven? Just zap us and put us in heaven for crying out loud. You follow me on this? I and mean, why give us free will and put everything at risk? If you can zap it, that's a risk-free way of doing it. I think God gives us free will because uh, morality is not the kind of thing you can zap into someone. He gives us free will because God wants to pour his love into and receive love back from genuine persons. People who have their own agency, who have their own freedom, who have their own thoughts. 
and who have something to do with what's happening in their life. Uh, the only way we're going to be perfected, I think, in terms of love and patience and kindness and all the rest, is if we have something to do with it. We play a role in that. Only then is it really moral perfection. Fourth, uh, look at this passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, I mean. Yes, I've only given this sermon twice before, so I'm still getting kind of used to it. 2 Corinthians, it says this, we, we do have this confidence and we, we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's one of the ways that we know that we're conscious after death because Paul here says, when I'm away from my body, I'll be with the Lord. So whether we are at home in the body or away with the Lord, we make it our aim to please him. For all of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. He also mentions the judgment seat of Christ in Romans 14. And the reason we're, we appear before the judgment seat of Christ is so that each may receive recompense for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. Okay, now follow this. Uh, a lot of people assume that grace, God's grace means that there are no consequences for our behavior. And I want to submit to you that that is a mistaken conception. Uh, look, you, you, suppose you were a chain smoker all your life. And you come to Christ, and all your sins are forgiven. You're placed in Christ Jesus. Wonderful. But you still might die of lung cancer because of all that smoking you did. There, you reap what you sow. That still applies even when we are recipients of God's grace. Every decision we make has repercussions and has consequences. One of the major ones is that every decision we make goes to forming our character. Right? And, and that character has got to be refined and perfected before we enter the kingdom of heaven, before we can see Christ as he truly is. As I'm understanding Paul here, he's saying that one of the consequences of not cultivating a Christ-like character now is that you have to face the consequences of that later on. That's the recompense for the, 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 the life that you've lived. Uh, you've got to take care of it now or you've got to take care of it later. Uh, I, I don't know how that would possibly fit into any kind of zap theology. And also notice this. Paul says whether we're in the body at, or at home with the Lord, away from the body because we've died, either way our aim is to please the Lord. So even after death, your aim is to please the Lord. And that suggests to me that there's some kind of process going on here. There's a, there's a, it, it continues. Finally, and maybe most importantly, because it has the most pra practical ramifications, the, the, the reformers didn't intend this. I think the people who teach some version of this doctrine don't intend this. But uh, um, the Zap doctrine has the unfortunate consequence of making sanctification optional. Sanctification in this life, optional. So think about it like this. You've got a choice here. Option A, you can, with all earnestness and seriousness, strive for holiness, strive to be Christ-like, take every thought captive, you discipline yourself, you're involved in spiritual exercises, and, and, and you, you work hard at it all your life so that, when, so that you'll be prepared to, to see Christ as he truly is. You'll be like him. That's option A. Option B, sit on the couch, eat potato chips, and wait for God to do it when you die. Which option would most people choose? Right. <laughs> Duh. I'll take the no-cost version, thank you very much. Uh, especially in our consumer culture where we're always looking to get the most for the least. The no-cost one seems really nice. Why should I work all my life in obeying those biblical commands about striving and all that when, when God's going to do it for me? And so the uh, unintended consequence is that people just don't take sanctification very seriously. Why would they? Why would they? It's going to be given to us for free when we die. And so take the easy road. Take the easy road. Um, I think this goes a long way in explaining why it is there's all this research that shows, Barnett and others have shown this, that in America at least, 
about three quarters of all Christians who profess to have faith in Christ, uh, that faith has little to no ramifications in their life. It makes no difference. Uh, they live the same way, they think the same way, they have the same values and all that as they would have had were they not Christian. It's a Christianity without a difference. And I think a large part of the reason is because, yeah, God will perfect us when we're, when, when, when we're done. Why, why should I worry about that now? So we take the easy street. The thing is, folks, the passages we saw earlier, clearly, sanctification is not an optional thing. It's, it's got to happen. It's not a, and, and there's a ton of scripture around this. In fact, there's not one verse in the Bible that even hints that this sanctification thing uh, is, is optional. It's a necessity. It's got to happen. It's got to happen. Before we can see Christ as he truly is, we've got to be transformed into his likeness. And I just don't see how any of that fits in with the Zap Doctrine. There's some negative ramifications and some, I think, serious problems with the Zap Doctrine. So, in light of that, let's look at the second option. The idea that the sanctification process continues as long as necessary when we die. Uh, again, there's not much uh, 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 details on this in Scripture, but there's some. I'm going to avoid using the word purgatory in describing this view because Protestants have uh, buzzers around the word purgatory. It, we immediately think of paying for your own sins, and so we have this, this, this negative reaction to it, which is justifiable if that's what you think purgatory is. But I'm talking about this, this we could call this post-mortem sanctification, all right? <laughs> or this is referred to as the judgment seat of Christ because I think it all takes place under the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, I'll, I'll just look at a couple passages here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3. Listen to what Paul says. This is, this is powerful. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has been laid, and that foundation is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on that foundation, see, the foundation is given to you by grace. Boom, you have it. But now, the stuff we do with it. If anyone builds on that foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, the work of each builder will become visible. The day will disclose it. That day, that, 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 he, Paul uses that a number of times. The day, or the day of the Lord, is referring to the judgment seat of Christ. The day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If what has been built on the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer loss. The builder will still be saved because he's got the foundation, but only as through fire. So as I'm understanding this passage, we've got the foundation, and, and for us the foundation is our identity in Christ and all that is, is given to us in Christ. That is there. That, that withstands the fire. No, no, no threat of that being lost. But our part in this is that we build on that foundation. What do we do with what God has given us? And Paul draws this analogy. Uh, you, you can build stuff, gold, silver, precious stone. That gets refined by fire. But if, you're, if what you've built is wood, hay, and straw, or stubble, well, that gets burned up. And so my understanding of this is that when we die, we come into the presence of God's perfect love. And that love is a burning fire. It's God's passionate love. And that fire burns up everything that's not consistent with that love. And that love purifies everything that is consistent with that love. That's the judgment seat of Christ. In, in fact, if you're serious about pursuing Christ-likeness here and now, you're already in this process. The love, the love of God is already working to burn things off of you that aren't consistent with who you are in Christ and not consistent with the kingdom of God. And it's refining things in you that are consistent with the, your identity in Christ and with the kingdom of God. So what's not completed now will be completed on the day of the Lord. 
the day of the Lord. And I, if you ask me details about how long does that last, and da 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 da, I have no idea. I have no idea. We don't have much to go on here. I, it's, I think it will vary depending on whether you yield to it or you re- whether you resist it. And some of us have learned that when you resist, when you resist that purging fire, it gets hotter. <laughs> uh, you bring misery on yourself. But when you yield, well, then the process uh, goes r- rather smoothly. Here's another passage. This is from Jesus. Uh, there's a number of things in the teachings of Jesus that seem to suggest that processes that aren't complete in this life get completed in the next prior to going to heaven. So I'll give you one illustration of this. Matthew 5. Jesus says, comes to terms quickly with your accuser while you're on the way to the court with him. Or your accuser may hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, you will get out. So he's not talking about hell. Um, but you won't get out until you pay the last penny. Uh, I, I, I don't so I see how this fits in with the Zap doctrine at all. Uh, now, here's the thing. Jesus, whenever he's giving teachings, he's always appealing to common realities that his audience knows about. All right, so he, he, he builds his lessons on that. And everyone was familiar with the court of law, and when you're at odds, it, it, that it's much better to settle out of court before you go into court, because once you go into court, well, bad things can happen. And it might, it, it might go against you. And the, but that, that, would, that looks like sort of the punishment doctrine of purgatory, doesn't it? But that's just the prop. The punchline of the prop is, I think, this. Take care of things now because it may be harder later on. Take care of things now. Uh, Forgive now. Reconcile now because it's only going to get harder later on. And if you take that with you to the grave, it could get harder still. That's how I'm understanding Jesus. So forgive now. You you got an offense. Take care of it. Forgive. Ask for forgiveness. Whatever. But do it now because if you hold on to that, if you hang on to unforgiveness, and some of you, I bet, know this from experience, well, it begins to grow roots in you. It begins to get deeper in you. Uh, it, it begins to kind of pull your insides. It, it begins to become part of who you are. We make choices, and our choices become habits, and our habits become character. If you choose not to forgive quickly, well, you, you become a habitual unforgiver. And now it's harder to get out of unforgiveness. And if you continue with that, you become an unforgiving, a person with an unforgiving character. And now it's even harder to get out. So forgive now, because it's only going to get harder later on, and if you take it to the grave, it'll get harder still. And folks, that's, I think, the point for all the sin in our life. Take care of it now. Uh, it's not going to get easier. Take, take care of de- Declare war on that lust problem now, because it's not going to get easier if you just keep living with it. It just becomes more a part of you. And, and if you take it to the grave, it could be harder still. Deal with that selfishness now. Deal with that greed now, that, 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 that pettiness now, or your slander, or, or whatever the thing is in your life, your attitude, your lack of love, whatever it is, deal with it now, because it only gets harder later on as it becomes part of your character, and if you take it with you beyond the grave, it becomes harder still. That is, I think, the point that uh, Jesus is, 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 is getting at. Today is the day of salvation, so deal with this now. Be serious about sanctification now, because as I read Scripture... I, you can feel free to disagree, but as I read Scripture, sanctification is a non-negotiable process, and our participating in it is a non-negotiable process. And do it now when it's easiest, because it only gets harder. And the next side of the, the grave, the other side of the grave, it could be harder still. Now, the, this idea of, of uh, you know, post-mortem sanctification, it clearly isn't all pleasantries. <laughs> 
I mean, just the metaphor that Paul uses of it being burned away, that doesn't sound like fun, does it? It involves some suffering. It involves some suffering. That shouldn't surprise us, though, because I think sanctification now involves some suffering. Come on, it's all about self-denial and, and picking up your cross and, and all that. that that's, some of that's painful. It, 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 you suffer from it. It's not easy. You've got to say yes to things that you'd rather say no to, and you say no to things you'd rather say yes to. That causes some suffering. And to be disciplined and to get rid of that and all, all of that, it, it, it's, it's not easy. It involves some kind of suffering. But both now and at the judgment seat of Christ, the suffering doesn't mean that it's devoid of joy. I want us to see this. In fact, we're going to see joy. It presupposes joy. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12. He says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let's lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. Do it now! It only gets harder later on. And let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy... For the sake of the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. The author's saying, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he, he suffered unimaginably, spiritually and physically, and yet he didn't do it begrudgingly. He did it for the joy that was set before him. And the joy that was set before him is he saw what the suffering would bring about. He saw what it would produce, and it gave him joy. He saw our salvation, and it gave him joy. He was willing to do it because of the joy that was there. Amen. Going to the cross isn't joyful, but you go to the cross for the sake of the joy on the other side of it. And, and the author says this should be our attitude. For the joy set before us, run the race. For the joy set before us, lay aside every sin. Lay aside all the things that could be set to you, that tends to cling to you. Lay it aside now for the joy that's set before you. It's so important that we see, that we remember what the suffering of sanctification leads to. Like, it, it, it may be hard, but, but as you're feeling like you want to complain, you remind yourself that this suffering here, this is the ticket to your freedom. This is the ticket that, 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 that will break the chains of the enemy in your life. As you're going through some suffering, remind yourself that this is, a, this is what freedom tastes like. Uh, th 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 this is what the ticket to, to being more Christ-like. This is the ticket to deepening your capacity to receive God's love and to receive God's joy and to receive God's peace and to, to overflow with others. This is the ticket to you finally becoming who you truly are in Christ, what God created you to be. This is the ticket for you to be able to dance in life rather than limp through life. This is the ticket to freedom. It's, it's like one of the things we did on the Sankofa trip is we went to this uh, runaway house. Um, for, it was part of the Underground Railroad in Memphis, Tennessee. And, and, and it's turned into a kind of a museum of sorts. And we just talked about how utterly nightmarish it was for runaway slaves trying to get to the north. They had to endure unimaginable things. And if they got caught, I don't want to tell you what that was like. Uh, and they had dogs chasing them. They were trained to devour them. It was unthinkable. But they did it, why? For the joy that was set before them. They, 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 that, that north, it, it was like the promised land to them. Uh, someday I'm going to be treated like a human being instead of worse than cattle. Uh, someday I'm going to be free. Someday I'll be able to make my own decisions. And for the joy set before them, they were willing to endure this. That's how we should, should consider this process of sanctification. It's not always pleasant. It's, it's sometimes very, very hard. But uh, keep in mind, get a picture of what you will look like when you're free of this, 
I talked to a guy three weeks ago, uh, and he was jonesing terribly. Uh, he, he had just quit cocaine, and he was in an outpatient program, and he was shaking and sweaty, and, and I felt for him. And he'd only been off it for 24 hours, so that's when it's worst. And I said, okay, dude, look, at, uh, get, a, get a picture of yourself, how good it's going to be when you're free of this, when you don't have this demon on your back anymore. You know, when, get, get a picture of that. And all the things to be able to do that you can't do when you're addicted. You know, just, just get a picture of that and enjoy that. And for the joy set before you, endure this. It may be a couple weeks, maybe a couple months, but man, it's going to be so worth it when it's done. That's, it. That, that's the model we should have for, for sanctification, for the joy set before us. I'll say one more thing, and that's this. Even though Paul talked about this refining fire and burning up fire, the fire of God's passionate love, he said, I'd rather be with the Lord away from the body. There's an advantage there. It can be tough, and we should have taken care of this stuff in our lifetime, but, but there is an advantage there, and I suspect the advantage is that we'll see that joy more clearly. Uh, we, we, we won't see Jesus exactly as he is, not till we're perfected, but I think we'll see more of the glory of God there, and that will give us joy, but I'll get a better picture of what I will look like when I am perfected, and the freedom, and, and, and all of that, and that is what motivates me to want to do it now. And the New Testament, over and over again, says now is the time to take care of this stuff. Take it seriously now. If you don't, you're going to have to take it, take it seriously later. <laughs> You'll have no choice. That's the recompense for not taking it seriously now. So I'd like you to close your eyes. I want to end with this exercise. Um, think about what is a major, maybe the major thing in your life that is not Christ-like. Don't think of all the things. Let's focus on one. It could be an attitude that you have. It could be an addiction that you have, or habits that you have. It could be a relationship that you have that you know you're not supposed to have. It could be anything about your life that is not consistent with the character, the perfect character of Jesus Christ. And, and if, you have trouble, if you're having trouble thinking of one, ask the Holy Spirit to bring something to mind. All of us have something. Holy Spirit, help us to see what we're supposed to see right now. And then I want you to get a picture of you free of that thing. And enter into the joy of that when that, this is no longer plaguing your life. You no longer have this monkey on your back. And just, Holy Spirit, give us a picture of this. And, and, and it's you now in the kingdom free of this thing. And enjoy that, enjoy that. Because it will happen. If you're on the foundation, it will happen. It's just a matter of when and how, and preferably now, but it will happen. So enter the joy of that. Okay, now, having that picture and the joy of being free, I want you to ask the Spirit, what can you do now to begin to get that thing off your back, to get free of this thing, this bondage? Because all sin is bondage, all of it. Uh, what steps can you take here now? One of the steps I would recommend, in fact, I really want to strongly recommend, is that you invite somebody else or some others in on this. Everything in the kingdom is supposed to be done in community. Who will you invite to hold you accountable to this and to help you get rid of this thing? God, give us wisdom, concrete steps, that you can take, beginning today, to get rid of this thing. To begin to walk towards this. This is your pursuing holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is you purifying yourself because you know he is pure. 
and you'll only fully enter into his presence and see him as he truly is when you are pure like him. So take this step. Holy Spirit, make it concrete. Give us a conviction about it. To motivate us to do this. You, you may have some fear around this because it could be that this thing's so entangled in your life you can't even conceive of being free of it. So Lord, give courage. Give us courage to face what needs to be faced. To declare war on what needs to be declared war on. Give us courage to be willing to suffer for a season if that is what it takes. And to, but to do it for the joy that is set before us. In Jesus' name. Uh, folks, this is just what faith is all about. This is faith. Uh, Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Okay? It, you, you, you see it as a substantial reality. You, you hold it there, an image. And, and it, it's what you anticipate to be true. So you, you see it, and that creates, the author says, a conviction that it is so. It, the more you see that joy, your freedom, you believe this about yourself, it, it will motivate you to begin to walk in that direction I encourage us to be doing that regularly. This is, a, this is the foundation of our sanctification. Uh, the willingness to be disciplined about things we'd rather not be disciplined about. But boy, is it worth it. And do it now, because it's only going to get harder later on. And if you take it with the grave, it's harder still. Amen? Amen. Would you stand up? I would like to invite the prayer teams to come forward here and stand by the stairs. And if you're here this morning and have any need that could use prayer, I want to encourage you to come up here and pray with these folks. Don't, don't carry that alone. And uh, if you're here this morning and have not uh, surrendered your life to Christ, um, you don't have that foundation. See, the Christian may have a lot burned up, but the, the foundation's not shaken. But if you're not surrendered to him, you don't have that foundation, I want to encourage you to consider getting that foundation by coming up here and talking to these folks about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and to surrender your life to him and begin that walk that we're talking about, all right? As we leave here, can we do it as a people who are committed to pursuing Christ-likeness, uh, to growing in his love and deepening our capacity to love and to love others? If you're in agreement with that, say amen and go out and love your neighbors. Amen. God bless you guys. See you next week.